Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. I'm on the island of Grimsey, off the northern coast of Iceland, standing in front of a huge concrete ball. It's nine feet in diameter, and it has a gray, pockmarked, sort of lunar-looking surface. It's super strange. Um, Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and this thing is called Orbis at Globus. That's Latin for circle and sphere. And it's been placed here to mark the Arctic Circle. Grimsey is a tiny island, five square kilometers or two square miles, and it's home to less than 100 people. On the day I was there, it was also home to thousands of nervous puffins, a couple of stoic sheep, and about a dozen horses that looked like they'd been trained in picturesqueness by the Icelandic tourism board. But once I left the village, I didn't see any other human-made structures until I came upon this thing. This enormous gray ball sitting in the grass at the end of this Arctic island. It's wonderfully weird. It feels like I might have found a stone flung from the slingshot of a mythological Nordic giant. I can't wait to talk to the artist about it. I love it that it's got this hole through it so you can see through it. I stepped up to look through the hole running through the middle of the ball, and I started to hear something. A low, droning sort of hum. Oh my gosh, that's what it sounds like? (laughs) I am standing on the Arctic Circle. My voice sounds really strange right now because I am talking into an enormous ball of concrete. This is the sound of the Arctic Circle. On a windy spring night at the end of Grimsey Island, this lonely piece of art was singing to itself. So far this season, we've focused our attention on two specific Arctic places. But this time, we're gonna zoom way out and try to answer two fundamental questions about the region as a whole. In the second half of this show, we're going to try to figure out why humans ever came to live in the Arctic in the first place. But we're going to start with something even more basic than that. What is the Arctic? Like, where exactly does it start and stop? And that's where this giant singing ball of concrete comes in. It was designed to mark the place where the Arctic officially begins. But there's a plot twist here because although we've put this line on our maps and globes as a fixed, permanent thing, this sculpture was designed to move. Why is there a giant ball of concrete on the Arctic Circle? 
And why does this huge sculpture have to be moved every year in order to stay on the Arctic Circle? Orbis et globus, and so much is morus, on this episode of Threshold. To me, it seems like there's a revolution in technology. We see it first in Africa, and then it's like these folks are bringing it with them. Everything is changing. It's all, all, everything's on the move. It's bigger than us. It has its own life and does its own thing, and we just have to follow. It was fun to know that it's that old. No one would expect it. Uh, we, we are very small in this uh, universe, and less significant than most people think. One of the most fascinating things about the Arctic is the way it scrambles our relationship with light. If you're north of the Arctic Circle on the summer solstice in June, the sun never sets. And on the winter solstice in December, it doesn't come up at all. This is why the Arctic Circle is where it is. It's supposed to mark this spot where there's 24 hours of light for at least one day each summer and 24 hours of darkness one day each winter. All across the Arctic, there are signs marking this line. Little spots where tourists stop and get their pictures taken. Sometimes locals set up shops nearby and sell souvenirs. And that's the way it's always been on Iceland's Grimsey Island, too. Until these two guys got involved. I'm Steve Kreister, and I'm an architect. And I'm Christian Robson, and uh, I'm an artist. How do you say your last name again? Robson. Easy. (laughs) Easy. I met with Kristen and Steve in Reykjavik, Iceland's capital, where they've collaborated on lots of public art projects over the years. In 2013, they heard about a competition to make a piece marking the Arctic Circle on the island of Grimsey. And as Kristen studied the submission guidelines, he got really intrigued by one small detail about the project. I stumbled across a small number. They said that the Arctic Circle is moving 14 centimeters a year. And I found this rather strange. So I I thought, let's search this out. Kristen's research led him to the third character in this story. My name is Thorstein Simonsson. Thorstein is an astronomer. He's retired now, but he used to work at the University of Iceland. Um, Actually, my specialty is the effect of the sun on the Earth. Thorstein told them it was true. The Arctic Circle isn't fixed. It moves. And it moves because the angle of the Earth's axis moves. To understand this, it really helps to have a visual aid. So hold your hand up in front of your face, straight up and down, so you're looking at the edge of your first finger. Now tip your hand forward just a little bit. That's what the Earth's axis looks like. The top of your fingers are in the Arctic, your wrist is in the Antarctic. But now move your hand back up just a touch so it's closer to straight up and down then push it forward again. That's what the Earth is doing. That's what we're all doing, riding on this planetary seesaw up and down between 22 and 24 and a half degrees. And this movement changes the amount of the planet that goes into total darkness on the winter solstice and total daylight on the summer solstice. Picture a giant contact lens resting on top of the globe. The Arctic Circle is the edge of that lens. It spreads out as the Earth's axis becomes more horizontal and shrinks up when it gets more vertical. So we essentially have more Arctic when the axial tilt is greater. Not necessarily more cold, just more surface area of the planet that experiences these extremes of light and dark. 
Thorstein says this movement of the Earth's axis happens in a predictable, cyclical way. This period is about 40,000 years. 20,000 years in one direction, 20,000 years back. We're currently somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, kind of splitting the difference between the most tilted and the least tilted spots. But the axis is moving closer to straight up and down, so the Arctic Circle is moving north. And what this means for Iceland is that the circle is slowly slipping away from them. It used to run right through the mainland, but now this small island off the northern coast is the only habitable spot in the country touched by the Arctic Circle. And that's drawn tourists here for decades, as Steve Kreister describes. You will have noticed when you arrived in the plane is there is this sign there made of aluminium, and, and that's where they, they unload the tourists off the airplane, they can walk them around the sign, give them a certificate, and send them back home again. In 2013, the local government decided this Arctic Circle marker was due for an upgrade. So they launched a competition, and like Kristen said earlier, the information they put out said that the Arctic Circle was moving 14 centimeters a year. But Thorstein figured out it was actually moving a lot more than that, an average of 14 meters a year. That's the difference between five and a half inches versus 46 feet. And at that rate, the Arctic Circle will only pass through the island of Grimsey for a few more decades. It's heading north, yeah. It, it will leave the island in 2047, I think you calculated. And, yeah. After that, the Arctic Circle will continue its northern migration for thousands of years, leaving all of Iceland behind until the Earth's axis begins to tilt back in the other direction. This was not great news for the people of Grimsey. They'd always been told the Arctic Circle ran through the middle of their island, right next to the airport and the souvenir shop. But when we made, found this out, then we saw, this is not true. Steve and Kristen realized they had a decision to make. They could ignore the science of how the Arctic Circle actually works and just make another stationary monument in the same place where it had always been, or they could take in this new information and let it reshape their whole idea of what this monument was about. As you've no doubt already guessed, they decided the complicated facts were much more interesting than the nice, easy fiction. So, so everything is... It's changing. It's all, all, everything's on the move. So it's, it's a fantastic way of seeing this. They started to dream up ideas for a moving monument. We were thinking at one time that we could have a, just a, a band across the island and we could get a horse to graze across the line. So we had lots of different ways of representing this moment. And then gradually it crystallized into something as simple as, as a ball because it's something you can move. And it also represents what we're on because everything that we're talking about or thinking about is actually affected by balls. So it seems quite logical that the thing that is being affected at the end of the day is another sphere. Okay, so some kind of ball, something that can be rolled, but also something that doesn't move too much Grimsey is a very windy place. It has to have a certain presence, a certain physicality, a certain weight. So what did they end up with? An enormous ball of concrete. The thing weighs eight tons. It's three meters in diameter, or about nine feet. So it's, it's bigger than us. Yeah, that was the thing that we realized that it had to be big enough to be something that you couldn't put your arms around. You know, it's, and even if five people linked their arms, they'd be, they'd be having a, a struggle. So it's, it's something you, you can't... Con contain. It has its own life 
and does its own thing and we just have to follow and like now even though we know it's going north this summer it will go south yep you heard that right the arctic circle isn't only moving in one direction the moon has an effect too Thorstein says that as the Earth's axis moves slowly back and forth on that 40,000-year seesaw pattern, there's a much smaller, faster, miniature seesaw happening as well. This wobble is caused by the moon. And this is, is called mutation, and it disappeared about uh, 18.6 years. That's nutation with an N, in case you want to look it up. And what it comes down to is this. Although the Arctic Circle is currently moving northward, that movement isn't a straight line. It's a squiggle, a big line moving in one direction with a bunch of smaller little zigzags contained within it. We've got pictures of it on our website, which definitely helped me wrap my mind around this. And then, just when I thought I really understood what was going on, Thorstein said this. I must say, must add, that there's one factor that comes into this. And people never think about that, or seldom think about that. And that is the movement of the Earth's crust. This is something we cannot predict very accurately. The Earth's crust itself is moving. The surface of the planet. It's made of moving parts. Every spot that we're standing on was once in a different place, and will be in a different place again later. I have to say, as I was learning all of this, my heart kind of went out to Steve and Kristen and the organizers of this competition. It seemed like a simple challenge. Make a monument to the Arctic Circle. You know, just something pretty or interesting to place on this tidy little line that human beings have drawn around the top of the Earth. But the deeper these two went into that project, the more complexity was revealed. But I think that's also something you accept as you get older, you realize that you don't have a grasp on everything. The older you get, the more you realize you don't know. This kind of thing has happened to all of us. This moment when we find out some new information that makes everything so much harder and more complicated than we thought it was. And then we have to decide if we're going to take that in or turn away. This happens with climate change. As we learn about how our human activities are impacting the climate, it can get so overwhelming that we'll twist ourselves into knots in the effort to avoid accepting reality. And one of those knots is related to this movement of the Earth's axis, that seesaw thing that we did with our hands before. Some people are spreading the idea that this change in axial tilt is one of several natural processes that are heating up the planet, not our human actions. You may have heard this yourself and wondered, could there be anything to that? So let's just examine it quickly. First of all, the Earth's climate does, of course, change naturally. Historically, the planet has fluctuated between ice ages and warmer periods, and changes in axial tilt are part of what drives that pattern. But those changes play out over huge timescales, tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. The warming we're experiencing now is happening at lightning speed in comparison. It can be measured in decades and centuries. And the cause of that warming is not a mystery. It's us. And this is a total drag. Like it'd be so much easier if this wasn't true and we could blame global warming on the stars or the aliens or anything other than ourselves. But the reality is, Burning fossil fuels moves carbon into the atmosphere, and that heats up the planet. This is not in doubt. It's a fact. So we have a choice. Do we accept the truth 
as difficult as it might be, or do we try to push it aside so that we don't have to change? When it came to making this Arctic Circle monument, Steve and Kristen chose option number one. They opened themselves up to wherever the more complicated truth might lead. And it turned out to lead to something pretty darn cool. This is a moving thing. It's, it follows the circle, which, which is nothing you can touch or see. And that's interesting that the object is following this idea. The ball is the least important thing about it. The piece itself is the movement. We humans don't really like change. We like to make sharp lines and firm definitions, and once we get comfortable, we want to stay that way. But the actual physical world doesn't really work this way. It's really hard to find a straight line in nature. Instead, there are curves and twists, blurred boundaries and overlapping branches, and always, always change. Everything moves. Everything. Nothing excluded. Even the Arctic Circle and an eight-ton ball of concrete, both of which are scheduled to leave Grimsey Island in the year 2047. And that's when Kristin and I go up there with our Zimmer frames and kick it into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> what is a Zimmer frame? It's, it's a walker, a grind. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so the question we started with here is, what is the Arctic? The answer? Anything above a zigzaggy line, which fluctuates between 65 and a half and 68 degrees north, which is so messy and complicated. There's really nothing about the Arctic that obeys our rules. We are very small in this uh, universe. Much, much smaller and, and less significant than most people think. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and we're tackling two questions in this episode. What is the Arctic? And why did humans ever decide to live there? And the journey to answer that second question begins tens of thousands of years ago here. It's summertime, and in a small Siberian village next to a river, people are settling in for the night. The kids are happy and exhausted after a long day of collecting berries and catching rabbits in the wilderness. The adults are taking advantage of the 24-hour Arctic light to do some fine handwork. One person etches a pattern into a cup made of bone, just a little design to add some flair. Another is sewing a parka out of reindeer hide in preparation for the next winter. And when they finally put down their projects and snuggle in under their bison hides, their bellies are full. Yes, it was, it was a good place. It was next to river crossing. This is Vladimir Petulko. He's an archaeologist with the Russian Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg. And in 2001, he was leading the team that discovered the remains of this ancient settlement, which was buried in the partially frozen soil way up in north-central Siberia, near the Yana River. The place is an archaeologist's dream. They found drinking vessels and axes, plates and spears, and lots of indications that these people were excellent tailors. Well, in Yana we have hundreds of needles. Uh, I think this is the biggest collection in the world which comes from the single site. 
Before the Yana River discovery, archaeologists thought humans first came to live in the Arctic about 14,000 years ago, toward the end of the last ice age. So when the radiocarbon dates came back on these artifacts, Vladimir was stunned. They are 32,000 years old, proof that we've been living in the far north more than twice as long as anyone previously thought. And further tests have yielded even older dates. It was uh, really fun to, to know that it's that old. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, there's no one would expect it. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's way up in the Arctic, right? It's up at 70 degrees latitude north. This is paleoanthropologist John Hoffaker. And so one of the things that, that people had to deal with up there for the first time ever, right, was very low sunlight. The sun goes down in, what is it, late November or whatever, and it just and it stays down. It's all dark for months. John is a fellow at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he and Vladimir have collaborated for decades on research about early human migration into the Arctic. We've got stuff coming out of those sites that we don't have from any other sites, right? He says it's hard to overstate the importance of the Yana River site. A lot of this stuff is decorated, right? It's fancy. It's, it's not just basic utilitarian stuff. It's, it's they, they, really, they put some craft and art into this stuff. For instance, we have these decorated ivory dishes. I mean, those are the oldest dishes and cups and things like that in the world. So how did the makers of these decorated dishes end up in far northern Siberia? Our species originated in Africa and began migrating out of that continent at least 200,000 years ago, probably even before that. But those early Homo sapiens didn't go to the Arctic. They hung out in the Middle East. They made their way to Indonesia and beyond. They even pushed north into Central Asia. But once they hit a certain latitude, they stopped. For tens of thousands of years, Homo sapiens stayed south of the Arctic Circle. And then, around 70,000 years ago, a new wave of humans began to leave Africa. And John says this exodus was different than the ones that came before. It's very rapid. It's, it's very successful. They are very quickly occupying all of these places that people were never able to live in before. This later wave of humans were the people who went on to populate the globe. They were the ones who came to live at the Yana River site and many other places across northern Eurasia. They walked east across Siberia until they bumped into a gigantic ice sheet and could go no further. When that ice melted, they quickly entered the Americas. We are all descendants of these adventurous explorers who went to live in the far north when no one else had done so before. So the question is, why? After a really long time of not going to the Arctic, why did humans suddenly decide to go live in Siberia? Well, that's okay. So, um... John has a really interesting answer to this question, and it has to do with a number of rabbit skeletons Vladimir's team discovered. They, they hunted them in a huge number, and uh, in many cases, they just didn't eat them. So it was because he says it appears that the Yana River people often didn't eat the rabbits. They were after the pelts, which they used to make long underwear, which must have felt quite soft and cozy, but Vladimir says they wouldn't have lasted very long. After a few months of steady use, the fur would break down. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you have to change it anyway. Uh, for um, sanitary purposes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe everybody needed two or three pairs of rabbit fur underwear each winter, and it takes a lot of rabbits to make one set of long johns. But I was still puzzled. 
If they went to all the trouble to catch so many hares, why wouldn't they also eat the meat? Weren't they constantly fighting off starvation? No, they, they, they had uh, lots of good animals to, uh, for food. And bison and horse <laughs> and reindeer. And they, so they did not care about eating uh, li, 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 little hares, uh, <laughs> which is actually not really tested. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I can eat it, but not really like. This shocked me. At least some of the time, these prehistoric Arctic Siberians had so much to eat, they could be picky. They could afford to have likes and dislikes. Okay, this this isn't just like, these aren't people who are barely clinging to existence, right, and, and, and making, you know, the basic essentials of life. Certainly, life that far north was hard, but this shows that not every moment of their lives was devoted to basic survival. You know, it, this doesn't look like a, like a hunting camp that was occupied by a few people, you know, like in July, who then scampered down south again, you know, at the end of the summer or something. These look like houses. John says it looks like the Yana River people may have used internal hearths, storage pits, all kinds of innovative stuff. To me, it seems like there's a revolution in technology, which is, I think, essential for occupying places like the Arctic. And uh, we see it first in Africa, and then it's like these folks are bringing it with them. And there's another thing. They also needed some pretty complicated technology to deal with the extreme low winter temperatures. So we, you know, we see indirect evidence for tailored insulated clothing for the first time. In the Arctic, sewing is just as much of a survival skill as hunting. That rabbit fur underwear Vladimir was describing, that was a life-saving innovation. And John believes all of these things together suggest a significant pivot point in the story of human evolution. Uh, my argument is is that there's a there's a change in cognitive faculties. I would argue, and at least a few of my colleagues would argue, that there's evidence for some significant behavioral or cognitive differences. John says the tools needed for catching rabbits and other small mammals are much more sophisticated than the big game weapons that had already been in use for millennia. You have to go through a whole series of logical steps uh, that are computationally more complex than, you know, say, just, you know, making a spear. John is not saying this cognitive change was caused by living in the Arctic. He thinks people in Africa went through some kind of evolutionary change prior to that wave of migration around 70,000 years ago. Basically, he believes they were just a little bit smarter than the very first Homo sapiens who had left the continent much earlier. In his view, it was because of that increased brain power that this later wave of people were able to live in places no human had ever gone before. Places like the Yana River and several other sites that have been discovered in far northern Eurasia. And when these early humans got there, they likely had this whole ecosystem to themselves. No primate competitors. So, why did we first come to live in the Arctic? Um, because we could. Because we could. And that may have made us unique. Maybe the Arctic became the special niche of the most advanced humans ever to walk the Earth. Maybe, if John is right, an increase in intelligence allowed our ancestors to survive in places where earlier strains of Homo sapiens just couldn't make it. In short, 
maybe we couldn't become Arctic until we became fully human. Every human migration story is complex, and this one is no exception. Climate, competition, and many other factors were also at play in our first forays into the North. And John says some of his colleagues think he might be overestimating the role of cognitive changes in this story. But there isn't a debate about the most important point here, which is this. You can't live in the Arctic unless you have some fairly sophisticated technology. Technology for clothing, shelter, hunting a wider range of land animals. Or, even better, and this obviously the Inuit were the masters here, for exploiting the very rich uh, food resources in the Northern Ocean, the whales above all. The, the Inuit figured out this, this amazing trick of not only surviving the Arctic, but, but prospering. I mean, building large, relatively stable communities, villages. And it was to do something extraordinary that I don't think the, you know, the Neanderthalers ever would have dreamed of, which is to you know, go out on these big boats way out into Arctic waters and hunt like the biggest mammals on Earth, you know, and haul them back in. I mean, it was like it was better than mammoths, right? I mean, a bowhead whales like several times larger than a woolly mammoth. So, you know, it was the ultimate strategy for dealing with northern environments. That was the you know the master stroke of Inuit technology. more descendants of those Inuit innovators in future episodes, but first, we're going to head in the other direction, west to Scandinavia. I am a Sami, and my country is Sápmi, but it is divided into four countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. That's next time on Threshold. Production partners for this season of Threshold are Montana Public Radio and PRI's The World. Thanks to them and to the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Park Foundation, and to you, our listeners. Threshold is created by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skibicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Allen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Costin, Matt Hurley, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Christine DeLong, Joel Harper, Nate McCready, Steve Running, and Jim White. Our music is by Travis Yost. Finally, a special message to you, our podcast listeners. If you like what you're hearing on Threshold, if you want this show to continue, please consider joining our amazing community of donors. 
every single contribution really does make a difference. Whether you can give $5 or $500 or $5,000, it's very easy to give. Just click donate at thresholdpodcast.org. You can give monthly. You can make a one-time tax-deductible gift. However you do it, we appreciate it. Thank you so much.